All right, I think uh, Mike has lost his job as doing the children's sermons. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Gene, were those your actual uh, roller skates? No, but I would wear them. Okay, those are pretty hip. <laughs> if you turn with me to Second Thessalonians 3. Pastor Mike is going to be back next week, and he's going to begin a two-week sermon series on Nehemiah, and which, get, which means we have one free week. So, um, I had to figure out what in the Bible to preach about. We just finished a series on, a long series on our calling to love others through 1 Corinthians 13. And I don't know about you all, but um, I was quite convicted quite often. Um, so I thought it'd be a good opportunity to have one sermon on God's great love for us. Um, I need a little filling up in that way. So, um, we usually walk through one passage, as you know, um, and do it more expositorily, but we're going to, I'm going to look at several passages, because there are a lot of passages that speak of God's love. So we're going to begin here in Second Thessalonians 3, if you would read with me, Second Thessalonians 3, verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. One more time. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, I'm aware as ever of the possibility that we would live as Christians year in and year out and know about your love, but never go deeper into it and be directed into it increasingly. And I feel that this is what you're saying in this passage, that it is our calling to experience your love to a greater degree, and it is only by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would pour out your love into our hearts this morning. And so that is our prayer. Direct our hearts into your love this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Miriam and I visited the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee this, this summer. And um, I kept seeing these signs to visit this cavern. So finally, I, was, I grabbed my, my two daughters and we went to visit this, this cavern. So we got there, we paid our admission, we met this guide... And um, then she led us to this small hole in the ground. And, um, and she told us, meanwhile, she's telling the story that these two small children uh, used to play in this cave. They discovered it when they were small back in the 50s. And after the war, they came back and bought the, the cavern. And, um, and then they, uh, they remodeled some of it, made it uh, so it could be open to the public, which was fascinating to me. Um, so we go, we enter this small little hole in the ground. And then all of a sudden we descend in down these stairs, these man-made stairs, into this giant room. It was at least as big as this room. She, um, the guide had a smile on her face as, as if to, to say this was only the beginning. We, we, she guided us through about a half mile of this cave with incredible beauty. Uh, at, towards the end of the the, uh, the 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 tour, there was this room that was 500 feet below the surface of the ground, 
and uh, it was about 200 feet tall. It could fit about 200, two football fields inside of it. It was overwhelming. I felt like I needed to sit there and stare um, for a long time. And then she told us that the cave actually goes several more miles after this. And it opens into a room that they can't even see the back of. It's so, so big. Paul is writing this book, Thessalon- the, the book of Thessalonians, to Christians who are going through some pretty difficult persecution. And in this verse, I, I, I just find it so interesting because he pauses in the middle of this letter to these Christians that were going through difficult times to basically pray for them and to encourage them. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. It, it, it makes us ask the question, well, there are Christians. Don't they already know about the love of God? Don't they... I mean, you can't be a Christian without knowing about the love of God, right? But I think Paul is teaching them and us this truth. The reality that we can have faith in Christ and be Christians, even for years, and still needed to be guided deeper into a knowledge and experience of the love of God. Because I I think most of us can relate with this. It's not hard to be putting the kids down and seeing Jesus loves me, this I know, all the while while they're piddling with books or the lint in their belly button. <laughs> and, and you, meanwhile, even while you're singing, you're thinking about, with anxiety, your finances or a health concern or something going on in your life. And you finish, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Good night, kids. And you have not experienced that love of God. It's easy to stay overwhelmed. Life anxiety, with anxiety, all kinds of things, and still not be experiencing God's love. My hope is that this verse would serve as a prayer for us this morning. The truth is, is that God's love, as we know, it's not a simple truth, is it? To believe at one time in your life, and then move on. It, it is like, it's, it's not a hole in the ground to discover. It's more like a cave to explore and go deeper into. And God wants us to duck through this hole and to descend into a cavern and be overwhelmed increasingly with his love. In a way, hopefully that even this morning it would bring hope to those who are going through difficult times, or situations in your life right now, who feel like they're overwhelmed and need anxiety to be washed away, to bring joy to any despondency. And that's our prayer. So we're going to explore God's love through four different themes this morning, like four exploring four different big rooms of this cavern. There's many more of them. But we're going to look, like, look at God's love in terms of size, value, pleasure, and sacrifice. I bet y'all didn't even know we're able to use four points instead of three. We can do that. Size, value, pleasure, and sacrifice. So let's look first at size. Number one, size. Turn to Ephesians 2, or you can read it on the screen with me. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. If you want to look in your Bible, I'll give you a second. It says this. But God, being rich in mercy... 
because of the great love with which he has loved us, he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul begins this section, he's finishing up from three verses about being dead in our trespasses. Let me say something about that. Because I think this, I think God has hardwired, I mean, not God has, I think we are born in our fallen nature, hardwired to think that we are not dead in our trespasses and that God's love is responsive to something good or bad that we do or don't do. God loves us more when we're good or doing our best or when we're really successful Christians. That's what we tend to think. But God's love for us, Paul reminds us in these first three verses of Ephesians and right here, that God is not aware, uh, unaware or indifferent to our moral failure. God's a God who loves righteousness and he hates iniquity. And it says here that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God set his love on us. Being dead in our trespasses, it doesn't mean physically dead, obviously. It means incapable of doing anything good that pleases God, that could earn his love. And in verse 1 through 3, it describes us as worldly, sons and daughters of disobedience, and by nature, objects of God's anger and wrath even. So imagine yourself in this situation, just for a minute. Imagine that you were an older child waiting to be adopted by parents who would love you. And the caseworker brings you before a couple looking to to adopt someone and they open up your file, your resume per se, and and they start reading it aloud. And they say, you know, I'll tell you what. Um, It says here that they're really disobedient. Uh, They rebel a lot, actually even most of the time. They don't really deserve to be adopted. And they like chocolate ice cream. (laughs) Basically, verses 1 through 3, it is our resume that we bring to God. But the passage continues. But God, even while we were rebelling against God, and that's our resume, He made us alive with Christ. He adopted us. Why did he do it? It tells us why. Look here. Because of the great love with which he loved us. See, God's love for us was not and never will be based on what we have or haven't done. J.I. Packer says in his famous book, Knowing God, he says, Love between two people is awakened by something in the other person. But the love of God is free, spontaneous, unevoked, and uncaused. God freely set his love upon you when he had seen everything, all of you, your whole life. And that's when he decided to love you. But notice that it's not just love, it is a great love. You notice the size of it? I'm sure many of you um, have heard or had special phrases for describing your love. Um, growing up, you know, our kids, for example, you know, when they're small, they'll say, Daddy, I love you, one, two, three, four, five, six. You know, it's like it, that's as much as they can count. 
That's the extent. Um, my phrase is, I, I love you. I'll tell my kids every night, I love you to the moon and back. And uh, they'll, they'll often respond with, well, I'm, I love you infinity. Because that's they've just heard that word. You know, <laughs> that's as big as they've got. And so I'll say, well, I love you two infinities. And then we'll go back and forth. <laughs> and don't come after, up after the sermon. I know you can't have two infinities. That doesn't make sense. Um, but why do we say things like that? Why do we try to measure our our love? Why is it not good enough to just say, love you, good night? Why do we try to measure it? In the case of a parent, because I think we want them to grasp the size of our love. It's bigger than you think. We need analogies to describe it. Words don't seem to get at it. And from the perspective of a child, we, we want them to rest in and be secure in this love. To have analogies so that when they're... they're they're doubting in times uh, when they've disobeyed or rebelled or feel unworthy of it, that they, that they know, ah, uh-uh, man, love is bigger. And there are no doubt many here who, have, who really struggle to experience God's love for the same reasons. You, you, maybe you have some really big sins in your past, or maybe you have some that you just can't really kick right now. Your tendency is to look through the lens of your great sin and and size up God's love for you. And in light of that, God's love seems, it feels small. I asked one of you this week, when you struggle to feel God's love, and uh, you wrote back to me in an email, you said, you know, I thought about it, and you said, for me, quote, and I don't think that I'm alone here, it's when I know I've deliberately, defiantly sinned against God. And this passage reminds us who can relate with that in that situation. In one way, it says, cheer up. You're much worse than you think you are. (laughs) But God, he knows and sees our big sin. And for us who believe, he has decisively, freely, unevoked, decided to set his great, great love upon you. He gives us an analogy, many in scriptures, but one that comes to mind is Psalm 103. It says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. I don't think he's just thinking about 250,000 miles to the moon. (laughs) I think he's thinking about its size has no Limits. The cavern just keeps going. And when your sin abounds, his grace, his love, it just, it's more, it's bigger. It is your and my responsibility to believe this. As Paul later says, continues in Ephesians 3, the next chapter, the breadth and length and the height and the depth. See what he's doing? Of the love of Christ for us. This is the size of God's great love. Number two, God's love in terms of value. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 7. It is on page 193. If you're using the Bible in your in the pew, Deuteronomy 7. Or you can read it on the screen as well. This point is to some who struggle to feel God's love. Not as much because of maybe your sin, but something deeper. Not maybe what you do and don't do, but maybe something part of your identity keeps you from 
really grasping God's love. You know, in 1902, there's a sociologist named Charles Cooley who developed a theory called the looking glass theory. Some of you probably know more about this than I do. I just read about it on the internet this week. The theory says that as we grow up, we develop our identity much from what others around us think of us. In other words, he says that we tend to become what the most important person in our lives says we are. Whether a parent, a spouse, a friend, or a boss. And unfortunately, for many, the most important person in your life, either growing up or, or now, didn't or hasn't loved you very well. It may have been parents, whether through a divorce or specific hurtful words or actions, they showed you a lack of love and you didn't get from the, them the message that you were valued. It may have been because so-called friends picked on you or excluded you. It may come from later in life from a marriage where a spouse, instead of loving you well, made you feel unlovable. Maybe it's from a current boss. Whether or not this is your story, I think we all have a longing. And we work hard to feel valuable, to replace this valuable, of what that important person says that we are. Maybe it wasn't a person, maybe it's from something else you're trying to get your value from, like your work. Or you feel valuable only if you're successful at your work or efficient. Or school, your value For some of you in school, it comes from only when you have a certain GPA or make a certain grade limit or do a certain, uh, uh, do well on a test. Maybe it is from your appearance. Your value rises and falls based on your weight or the clothes that you're wearing. Or maybe it's from your goodness where your value comes when you are not messing up. Or maybe... For some of us as parents, we feel valuable when, on our good parenting days and not so much on our bad parenting days. Like when the baby draws on the carpet with a marker when you're supposed to be watching them and not that that's my story from this week. <laughs> um, but Deuteronomy functions, it has something to say about this. It functions almost like a pep talk by God through Moses to his people as they're fixing to go into the land and experience some really difficult situations. And here in chapter 7, verse 6 through 8, let's hear what he says to them. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are On the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Because the Lord loves you. He says this, your identity is not in your strength or number, in being a great nation, your Value is not derived from being a great and successful nation. In chapter 9, he adds, it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord set his love on you. He says you're valuable because he set his love on you and chose you to be what? His valued, his treasured possession. 
Treasured possession, it uses that language. You know, we've probably all heard stories or seen movies about someone setting their hearts on finding some kind of great treasure out there. There's a lot of movies out there like that. But let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God has set his desire, his desire so specifically on you in order to make you his treasured possession? Do you think of yourself as if God's, you are God's treasured possession? Do you believe this? Do you believe that he didn't just choose you just to save you from your sins and bring you to heaven, but he set his love on you and brought him to himself? like one who's found a treasure. In Luke 15, Jesus describes it like a man who lost a valuable sheep and then finds it. Or a woman who lost a valuable coin and then finds it. Or a father who lost his beloved son and then finds him. He's coming home. Even though we are God's people as a whole, I love how Augustine says that God loves us as if there were only one of us. And I think some of you, it's good for some of you to think of God's love as corporate, but some of you really need to hear that this morning. This specific, laser-focused love on you being like a treasure that God sought out. I know some are saying, I hear that, and I believe it, but I don't feel it all the time. Let me give you a couple of quotes. One by Richard Sibbs. It says, measure not God's love and favor by your own feeling. The sun shines as clearly on the darkest day as it does in the brightest. The difference is not in the sun, but in some clouds which hinder the manifestation of light thereof. You hear what he's saying? We know that just because we don't see the sun or feel its heat because of the clouds, it doesn't mean that the sun is not there. And in the same way, We must let the truth of God's word define who we are and how valuable we feel, especially when we don't feel it. Here's another quote for you by Jerry Bridges. I love this. God's unfailing love for us is an object fact affirmed over and over in the scriptures. It is true whether we believe it or not. Our doubts do not destroy God's love, nor does our faith create it. It originates in the very nature of God who is love And it flows to us through our union with his beloved son. You who are in Christ, united to him by faith, God has set his love on you. And because Christ is his valued treasure, so will you be forever. And so you are valued. Third, God's love in terms of his pleasure. His pleasure. This one piggybacks a little bit off of value. It helps those of us who struggle to feel loved. To those who believe they're valuable to God maybe, but still often feel like God lives displeased with you. Is that any of you this morning? God, You feel like God is constantly displeased with you? You may say it like this. Like, I, I know, I get that God loves me, but I feel like he often doesn't like me. Or really enjoy me? My little girl who just turned four um, will say something like this sometimes. When she disobeys and we have to discipline her, she'll say, uh, you don't love me. 
you don't care for me very much, Daddy. And that's hard to hear. Um, but I think it comes because I think she knows that we love her as in she, we're committed to her. But in that moment, she's feeling my displeasure in her. And because some of us are constantly aware of our failure to not be good enough, uh, we project the same on God. As if he lives with constant displeasure in us. So if you turn to Zephaniah 3, it's on page 1004, or you can read it up here with me. You know, I, I couldn't just go with one verse on this one. There are so many verses, and I think this is one I need to hear so much. So um, I invite you to just kind of sit back and listen to a lot of verses, even before we get to Zephaniah 4, or 3. Um, verses about how God thinks of you of those who believe and who are in Christ. Let's read some of these. Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. How often have we read that one? With whom he is pleased. Luke 12. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Pleasure here, it means favor, approval, to enjoy or to be happy in something. That's how God thought of giving you the kingdom. A couple from the Psalm, Psalm 147. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Or Psalm 149. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. And lastly, from Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his, by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Have you ever been to a wedding reception when two people are on the dance floor and they're just dancing their hearts out and they're just staring at each other and just they just are so happy and kind of really into each other as if like there's no one else in the room and they really don't care how they look. You ever seen that? Um, personally, I, I really find it easy to think of God more like um, I'm standing with him in a, in a courtroom. And he has um, uh, gotten this certificate of debt that was against me with my sins. And he says, okay, Christ has paid that. He canceled the certificate of debt. Uh, you may go free. And then I leave. I also sometimes think of a God, of God like a parent who constantly has to correct me with displeasure. But you know how I want to think of him? It's like this. More. He's both. More. A God who... When I draw near to him, he draws near to me, not with just rejoicing, but rejoicing with gladness and exalting. You see that? Exalting over you. You know what that word means? It's used in the culture at the time when this was written as it's the word that we use to describe excitement at the joy of a birth of a child or at the celebration of a wedding. Exalting is what they did. You ever think of God singing really loudly over you with excitement and joy, with exultation? 
God tells the people in Isaiah 62 something similar. He says, you shall no more be termed forsaken for you shall be called my delight is in her. For the Lord delights in you. For as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God shall rejoice over you. You know, one of the privileges as a pastor is I get one of the best seats in the house at a wedding. Right? Just right here in front. Got them right here. And then when the bride comes in, right down the center aisle, what, what happens with the groom? Most people, a lot of people look at the groom, right? Um, because... He just lights up. There's so much glory. There's so much beauty. There's so much going on. He just, he just, you know, there's just excitement there. Because of the work of Christ on the cross for us, God is freed not just to act like a judge, but also a bridegroom. Also a bridegroom. Where there is real rejoicing over you, with real delight and pleasure. You know that expression, I was thinking about this this week, you know that expression that the honeymoon is over? Isn't that a horrible phrase? I mean, it's an unfortunate use in our, it's used in our culture a lot. It's used to describe marriages that begin with dancing and delight, but drift, unfortunately, in the sinful world, some drift into drudgery and even divorce. It shouldn't be true in any marriage Unfortunately, that's some of our realities, in the, even in this room. But it, know this, that they are not the most important person who gets to define you. It will never be the reality in your relationship with God. The honeymoon is not over and never will be. There will be thousands and even millions of years of delight and, and rejoicing and singing and exulting over us. For all those who think heaven will be boring. May such a reality not only bring healing to anyone who feels unloved, but also fill our heart and soul with great delight with a God who delights in you. That's pleasure. His love in terms of his pleasure. And lastly, a fourth way that we can see and experience, explore God's love is his sacrifice. Turn to 1 John 4, it's page 1304, if you're using a pew Bible. See, I find it interesting what some people find valuable. They're willing to sacrifice for. Uh, I was thinking about this and I looked up, um, what, are the, what are the things on eBay that people have paid the most for? Um, so I found out that uh, a rare Nintendo game went for $100,000. You got some retirement fun you want to spend on a Nintendo game? Uh, a round of golf went with Tiger Woods one time went for $400,000. Uh, a Honus Wagner baseball card went for $1.2 A letter from Albert Einstein went for $3 million. Lunch with Warren Buffett got over $3.4 And a yacht once brought $85 million on eBay. Interesting. The value of something is easily seen in what someone is willing to pay or sacrifice for it. That's what eBay kind of communicates to us. This is, of course, not always true. Uh, not always cannot always be put in monetary ways. Um, many of us know people who have donated organs 
to save the life of another. It's happened even in this church. We've all heard stories of a mother choosing to save her child in, in birth because of the cost, at cost of her own life. I read the story of one mother this week who did that. The doctor gave her, um, she only had a few minutes to decide. It's either you or your baby. And, and the story said that, uh, she just decided on the spot, um, take my baby, uh, let him live. Many of you sacrifice much in your daily life for the good of your family. And it's just true that love can often be measured by what one is willing to sacrifice for the good of another. And if that's true, then if you really still struggle to to feel and experience God's love, then one of the best places to look is what God himself has sacrificed for you. Right? 1 John 4, 9-10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest or revealed or can be seen among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let us not forget that life is not first about our great love for God and our need to work our way to him and earn his approval. It's first about God having so great a love for us that he considered us of having so much value to him that he anticipated having so much pleasure in our relationship that he was willing to sacrifice his only son and sending him to be a propitiation. Now, I'm sure that y'all are all incredibly familiar with uh, this everyday word, propitiation. Um, but just in case you're not, it simply means that God sacrificed his son to take our guilt away and be the object of God's wrath. He was a substitute so that he could rewrite our resume. When he rose again from the dead, the old resume was gone. The new resume is that God sacrificed Make us a treasured possession, great love, valued, in whom I have pleasure. As we sing this last song, I invite you to make it as much a prayer as a song. Ask the Lord to guide your heart as we leave here today into a deeper experience of God's great love for you. How deep the Father's love for you. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to everlasting glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, will you guide our hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ? In Jesus' name, amen.